I've heard somewhere that the first baby is like a bomb going off in the mother's world. It just totally rearranges you, <laughs> rearranges your life. It's not quite as big of a deal for the father. And then the second baby, that's when it hits the dad <laughs> because now you're, you're each dealing with a child all the time. There's no one person can take the kid and the other person can do whatever anymore. It's like one-on-one. -on -one. Then you have three. Welcome to War Stories from the Womb. This is a show that shares true experiences of getting pregnant, being pregnant, and giving birth to help shift the common cultural narrative away from the glossy depictions of this enormous transition you can find on all kinds of media to a more realistic one. It also celebrates the incredible resilience and strength it takes to create another person and release that new person from your body into the world. I'm your host, Paulette Kamenica. I'm a writer and an economist and the mother of two girls. In today's episode, you'll hear my guest talk about what she wished she'd known before her first birth, a birth that really went off the rails relative to her expectation, her mother's expectation, and the norm in her very large family. The fact that her expectation didn't match up with her experience really colored her views about herself. She also shares important insights about how she managed that challenge and the ones that followed. What you'll hear in this episode is the first part of our conversation. Let's get to her inspiring story. Hi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Can you introduce yourself and tell us where you're from? I am Megan and I'm from Canada. And what else would you like to know about me? Canada, are you freezing to death? Are you in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. we are currently freezing. My advice to you is to move south and west. <laughs> That's the answer. Great. Well, thanks for coming on the show today. We're going to talk about your kids. But before we get there, let's mm -hmm. back up and talk about your childhood. Did you grow up with siblings? Did you always know you were going to have a family? How does all that work? So I did, I grew up with 10 siblings, actually. Wow. Big, big family. I always wanted to be a mom, always. That was my ambition in life was to be a mom. I didn't really have any other like really solid practical ambitions. That was, that was what I wanted to do. Well, that's pretty practical. I mean, I feel like you got a good well, shot at it. It is, but you kind of have to have at least... In, in my upbringing, you kind of have to have a partner for that. <laughs> so. Yeah, totally true. Partner <laughs> helps for sure. Where, where are you in the lineup of 10? I'm number 10. There's 11 of us and I'm number 10. Wow. Yeah. A, a veritable baby among your siblings. Yes. Yes. Um, so did you watch your sisters and brothers have kids? Oh yeah. Yeah. I did tons of babysitting. My oldest sister had her first baby when I was only six months old. So oh. I've always been surrounded by nieces and nephews. That's awesome. And I wonder if that experience gave you certain impressions about what the process would be like. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Like my parents, they were married very young. They started having babies immediately. Is very young 18 or what's very young? Yeah. My mom was 18. My dad is 20, I think. Yeah. When they got married, she first baby before she even turned 20. And then she just had babies for 25 years straight. It's hard to relate to. I feel like I couldn't boil an egg at 18, right? It's hard to imagine exactly. no. taking on that kind of responsibility. It was a different world. I mean, it was, it was England in the fifties or early sixties, I guess. And they were, I think quite a bit more grown up at that age than we are these days. So 
Yes. I assume having lived through a war, they probably matured pretty quickly. Well, they were born near the tail end of the war, but you know, they grew up in the aftermath yeah. of a war. So yeah. yeah. Wow. Okay. So you've always wanted to be a mother and when it comes time to be a mother, is it easy to get pregnant? It was actually, yes. Didn't have any issues with that. I would just happen to be 29 when it finally <laughs> happened. So it took a while to find the partner. And we started trying fairly quickly just because I was almost 30 and we didn't know if there were going to be issues because you really don't know until you try. Yeah, so, for sure. But yeah, no, getting pregnant was easy. And how big a family were you imagining you were going to have? I think... When I was younger, like early 20s, I was hoping for five or six. That felt a lot more reasonable than, you know, 10. Once we started, I think we were thinking more like maybe four or five. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Well, so now we're going to get there. So you get pregnant easily. And is the first trimester what you expect? I mean, honestly, you don't really know what to expect because everybody's different. Like everybody's body handles pregnancy differently. Pregnancy, it was pretty textbook. There was nothing out of the ordinary, really. It was pretty average. It was uncomfortable, but not, yeah, no serious issues. It was just sort of normal. Did you have the usual things like nausea and fatigue? Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. I was so tired. (laughs) I kept waiting for the, the like middle of pregnancy boost of energy and it never came. I never came for any of them. Yeah. I was very tired. I definitely had nausea, but nothing like too severe. Yeah. I just got really big and really tired. (laughs) The the fatigue is is its own animal, right? It's absolutely is. And I have Crohn's disease and I'd had active Crohn's disease for like 10 years straight. I found out I was in remission, not even a year before becoming pregnant. And so I know fatigue. So I know Crohn's is obviously an autoimmune condition. Is it is it an issue with the gut or where does that issue lay? It's an issue with the gut, yeah. Yeah. And, and the symptom is that it makes you really tired? Well, it has a lot of symptoms, but yes, one of the sort of byproducts of Crohn's is that you are tired all the time, don't have very much energy. But yeah, pregnancy tired is, is different. <laughs> than... I, I feel like we should craft our own word because fatigue yeah. suggests something else. And this is... This well, is- you're growing a human being and it takes a lot out of you. It's hard work all the time. Yeah. It, yeah. yeah, it really is. And so as you're moving towards delivery, mm-hmm. right, do you have a picture in your head of what it's going to look like or how do you approach it? We didn't really go in with too many expectations. I think we both kind of knew we couldn't really control this. It was going to happen the way it happened. And we just did our best to kind of be ready, but obviously you have hopes, right? You hope that it'll go well and it'll be relatively easy in quotation marks because it's never easy, but you know, relatively, we definitely weren't expecting what happens. <laughs> I can tell you that. So take us to the day. What happens? How do you know today's the day? So when I got up that morning, I felt a little trickle. And so I called the hospital and they said, okay, well, your water might have broken. Cause it's not, it's not usually, unless you're actually in active labor, when your water breaks, it's not usually dramatic, like big gush. It's usually just a little bit, which we had learned from prenatal classes. So 
Uh, they said, just come in and we'll check and see what's going on. So I called my husband. He came home from work. We went to the hospital. I wasn't in labor. So they checked and there was amniotic fluid. It was just a tiny trickle and I'm still not in labor. My obstetrician happened to be working at the hospital that day and he decided that I was going to be induced. And I did not know that I had the option to wait for labor to start on its own. So what happens here? First of all, are you 40 weeks? Yeah, it was like a couple of days before my due date. And, so, and, and you, does he have a conversation with you? And he says, no, you know what? I didn't even see him until like 11 o'clock that night or whenever it was. Maybe No, it was earlier than that when he left for the day. I didn't see him at all this whole time. Okay. So there was no conversation. It was presented to me by the nurse who didn't present it as an option. She presented it as this is what we're going to do. And because it's our first time, because we don't know anything, we didn't think to ask, well, is that necessary? Can we wait for labor to start? We just went with it because we were totally fine with having this baby today anyway. So we just sort of went with it. I wish it had been presented as an option if they'd said we can induce you now because he's concerned about infection or we can wait 24 hours. And then if labor hasn't started, which I think is generally what usually happens from what I understand now. <laughs> so they started the drip and I went into labor almost immediately. Oh, wow. Yeah. I labor hard and I labor fast, which we learned. So it took several hours and then, and, you know, I was, I was having contractions. They were regular. They were fairly strong, but nothing too intense. And then a suddenly I'm trying to push like out of nowhere. They check me. I'm only like four centimeters or something. So they're like, well, I mean, you can't push. And I was like, but I'm not doing this on purpose. It's just happening. So they were trying to kind of slow me down and it wasn't working. There was quite a bit. Are, of they, are they slowing you down with, they took you off the drip or how, how what's the no, process? I don't think they did. I mean, it's all a bit of a blur for me. Yeah. Yeah. having birth and my husband is this his first time he doesn't know what the heck's going on I don't think they did though because I think I said something about it is there is there too much of this because I've never done this before I don't know that this is what my body does when it's transitioning so they gave me some of that I forget what it's called but you, you try to breathe the tube the gas Dental. yeah yeah it just made me feel queasy and weird it didn't help at all not the objective right no and then they tried the shower and that didn't help either. And there was quite a bit of blood, which is freaking my husband out. So he's like, "This does, is this normal? What's going on? So oh, it's probably fine, but we'll check her. And it had been half an hour at this point. And they're like, oh, we're like eight centimeters. Wow. <laughs> related. And so it was, it was only a few minutes after that. They said, all right, you can start pushing. But my baby was in right occipital posterior. So she wasn't in a good position. Okay, ideally for labor, the baby is head down, facing the mother's back with chin tucked to chest, and that's called cephalic position. In the right occipit posterior position, which is how the baby presented in Megan's birth, the baby's facing the mother's abdomen and slightly to the right, looking toward her mother's left thigh. This presentation may slow labor and cause more pain. For birth. And I pushed for about two and a half hours and we could not move her. The doctor was different doctors who were delivering and they were wonderful. They did their best with the bad situation. They tried to turn her head manually. And the second they let go, she just spin right back. So yeah. And then there was swelling, so they couldn't use forceps. It was just, 
I pushed for what felt like an eternity. Nothing was happening. They could see her at the top of her head, but they could not get her past that point. She was just jammed in my pelvis. So they finally said, we're going to have to do a C-section. We can't move this baby. There's too much swelling. Her heart rate's dropping more than we're comfortable with. There's a fair amount of blood and we're not sure where it's coming from. They thought maybe I had torn, but they didn't really know. My mom was with me. My sister was also in labor in a different place. So she was coming back and forth. Yeah. She was coming back and forth and my mom gave birth 10 times. She has been at many births of my sister's and when they said C-section, her face just went white because this has never happened in all of the births that she's experienced. This has never happened before. And it, it kind of scared me because she has a heart condition. And I was like, oh no, what's going to happen? But she was okay. So she ended up leaving because she couldn't be there with me for the C-section. When you said that, I literally had goosebumps that, that it took your mom. So by surprise, that's a pretty dramatic reaction. Well, she never had that happen. None of my sisters who had given birth had ever had that happen before. This is the first C-section in our family. And, you know, I'm still, I'm still her baby, you know, I'm her child. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, no. My first child. Right. And it just, yeah, she just, I I think it's legitimate. I just think that must've had an impact on you because it's having an impact on me and I wasn't there. No one's pregnant here. It scared me a bit when I saw that on her face. I was like, oh no. And I felt, I felt, I feel kind of responsible for her in a way, you know, because of her heart condition. And I was like, I really hope somebody's going to be around to help her and make sure that she's okay because I can't. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I can't do that right now. So she went over to where my sister was. And I think she went back to our house and, rested for a while at some point. So she was okay, but yeah, she just went completely white and I've never seen my mom react like that to anything. So it was a bit of a, it was a bit of a shock anyway. So then they told me I had to stop pushing, which made me really mad because pushing helps so much with the pain, but I couldn't push and I'd been pushing forever. So they wheeled me over to the operating room. I'm bellowing the whole way down the hall and I'm a very quiet, polite person. (laughs) And I was just bellowing. I feel so bad for all the other women <laughs> in that ward because they were hearing me. It probably scared them out of their minds. Anyway, but then they they took us to the operating room. They got the spinal anesthetic in and immediately I was myself again because I wasn't in any pain. And that part was really nice. Yeah. And then they brought my husband in for it. He was just... He was so traumatized. I felt he was just, he'd been sitting out in the hallway, like crying, <laughs> waiting for them to bring him in. Cause he's so terrified. He doesn't know what's happening. This is not what we were thinking was going to happen. So uh, does that mean that you guys didn't have any prep on like what a C-section involves or is it the fact that they're calling it an emergency or what it is that it was an emergency? It wasn't like I'd been pushing for a long time. There was blood. We didn't know what was going on. We were, we were scared. And he yeah. was, you know, he was really scared because this is our first child. Neither of us have ever been anywhere near something like this before. And surgery, I mean, it's major abdominal surgery Yep. and we don't know how that baby's doing in there. It was pretty scary. So anyway, they got her out and it was just such a relief just to know that she was there and alive, but they ended up whisking her off to the NICU fairly quickly because she wasn't breathing very well. She needed some help to breathe. And they were concerned that she might have inhaled blood because apparently my, the placenta was halfway off 
when they opened me up. It was, what does that mean? Halfway? You mean it had detached? The placenta had detached. It was like halfway off, which is not good when the baby is still in there and depending on your placenta for oxygen. Okay. So that's but, where the blood is coming from. Yeah. That's where all that blood was coming from. So that was pretty scary. I, I mean, I'm, they've given me something to relax as soon as she was out. So I have no idea. I'm just sort of in la la land. Yeah. But I told my husband to go with the baby. He went off with her. I didn't really realize what was happening at this point. I just knew she was there. She was alive. I'd heard her cry, given her a name. So I'm okay now. Right. It was just such a relief. It was okay. Reality did not hit me until they have you kind of wait for about an hour in the recovery bay before they take you to the maternity ward. And I was still sort of blissed out on drugs and my baby's safe. And my husband came back and was like, if she's okay, like she's just having some trouble breathing. So she's hooked up to the machine and we're just sort of giddy with relief that it's over at this point, because it had been quite the ordeal. Did not know that the ordeal was not over yet. The hardest part of the whole thing, honestly, was after they took me, they were taking me to the maternity ward. They wheeled me past the NICU, said, do you want to do you want to see her before you go over? And I said, well, yeah, of course I do. My baby. And as they took me past, there were a couple of nurses doing x-rays of her lungs and she was crying. She was so distressed and I'm laying in a bed and I can't hold her because the tubes aren't long enough for them to hand her to me. And so I just started talking to her and she immediately stopped crying when she heard my voice. And I might cry. <laughs> that's a, that's amazing, right? That's amazing. It is amazing, but it was heartbreaking because, because then they took me away and I heard her start crying again and my baby's crying and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. And really heartbreaking. And I mean, she was there for about 12 hours. I think it was the longest 12 hours. I'm, I was in labor for 12 hours. That was the longest 12 hours of my life was waiting for my baby. Is she going to be okay? When are they going to bring her? Because I couldn't get to her. I tried a couple of times and I couldn't do it. I've just had major abdominal surgery. Getting me out of that bed was difficult enough. I can't. So then they finally brought her to me and I felt like, okay, everything's fine now. (laughs) But then everything was fine for a while. But then the third day sort of crash happens, you know, the hormonal crash where you're suddenly just super down and I'm in so much pain. I'm exhausted beyond anything I could ever possibly have imagined. I've hardly slept this whole time in the hospital because once you finally do get to sleep, they come in to check your vitals and everything, right? Yeah. They're in there constantly. It feels like, yeah. And it was just really, I felt beaten in every possible way. I was in pain. I was exhausted. I was super swollen from all the IV fluids and things. Yeah. I didn't even look like myself. And then, you know, I've just been through this super traumatizing birth. I mean, it definitely could have been worse. I have a healthy baby. That's the goal, right? But it was still pretty traumatizing, especially for a first. I feel like you don't need to qualify it. I feel like it was, it was definitely traumatizing. Emergency C-section is scary no matter what. Mm-hmm. And she's in the NICU. I had a C-section for my first also, although it was scheduled and we knew my daughter was going to the NICU, but to be on the maternity ward without your baby in those first hours, 
is the loneliest place on earth. It's awful. And it's so isolating. And I remember after my C-section, it was super painful and it was so hard to walk. It was so hard to move. And you have to get out of bed because they're worried about clotting and all kinds of things. And I'm walking around the ward and you can look into these other rooms while you're walking by and every room has a mother and a baby. Mm. Right. And it's so hard to not be coupled like that. Right. In the beginning. Do you get her back after 12 hours? Yeah. Yeah, we did. Okay, good. And she stayed with us. She had jaundice. So it was kind of iffy whether we were going to get to go home on the third day, but we did, thankfully. And we're like, okay, everything's going to be, everything's going to be good now. (laughs) No. So after I think two or three days at home, we're like, she's not really doing anything in her diapers. This doesn't seem normal. What's going on? And then we're told, well, she's just not, she's not getting enough milk. You're not making enough milk. So you're going to have to start pumping to increase your milk supply. I have hardly slept because she cried. She'd sleep for an hour and then she'd wake up screaming and she only wanted me. Yeah. And so I think one night I nursed her for two hours straight and I was just, I was so exhausted. And now they need me to pump after I feed her. I tried. I really tried. I eventually got in to see a lactation, to the lactation clinic to see a doctor. And the doctor said, stop stop killing yourself over this. It's not worth it. So we were supplementing with formula at that point, but it was mostly formula. She would nurse a little bit and then she'd have a full bottle of formula. And she was so much happier with a, with a full tummy. Yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess for me, it was like, I've failed at giving birth and now I've failed at feeding my baby. Two of the most basic functions of a female body in a way, this is my job. And I haven't done it properly. And so I just felt really like, I just felt like such a failure. It's not, it's not really anything I had any control over. So I didn't really fail. It's just sort of one of those things that happens, but that's how I felt, you know, like I just failed at this, these two very basic biological jobs that I had and I just haven't been able to do them. Yeah, I can I can see where that's coming from, especially as one of 11 kids and with all these siblings having kids who are not having a C-section. But I think what gets either said silently or not said at all is back in the day, you both just would have died, right? Yeah. Maternal mortality was so high and that's just what happened, right? For sure. I realized, I did realize that in those circumstances, hundred years ago, probably even less, we probably would, we would have just both died and my husband would be a widower. C-sections have been around for a really long time, but in Roman times, C-sections were performed only on dead or dying women in an attempt to save the baby. And that was sort of the way it went for a long time. There was experimentation between then and the 20th century, but germ theory, the idea that illness could follow from microscopic organisms, didn't take hold until the end of the 19th century. So before that, there were many women dying of sepsis when they were subjected to medical procedures around birth, including C-section. Fast forward to 1955 in the U.S., roughly 99% of births are happening in hospitals. By 1970, about 5% of births were via C-section. But by 1988, the rate was closer to around 25%, which is where it hovers today. Because I'm imagining that how your baby comes down the birth canal in what exact position is a little bit of a a roll of the dice 
right? What about all the kids who are born breach, right? They, that's it. They would not, they would not have survived. Exactly. Yeah. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. There's a little bit, but not much, you know, as I learned later on, there are some things you can try to do, but it's never guaranteed. And she was just in that position and she did not want to move. (laughs) There was nothing anyone could do about it. And I don't know if the fact that I was induced is the cause of that. Like if it was just too fast and my body wasn't ready. I suspect it might be because my other two births, my sons were not in ideal birth positions at the beginning of labor either, but they both turned during labor. Yeah. And both of those labors just started on their own. In fact, my second pregnancy, I had a, a doctor who specialized in higher risk pregnancies. And I'd asked her about in, inducing if I went over term, was that something that they did? And she said, she really, really tries to avoid inducing because if your body's not ready, it increases the risk of a C-section. Okay. This is a good question. Does induction lead to more C-sections? This is a bit of a controversial question. And what's of the utmost importance in the studies that focus on this is the comparison group. Induced labor compared to what? In many studies, labors that underwent induction are compared to spontaneous labors to see which one led to more C-sections. But this is not a great comparison. First, you're comparing choices, and spontaneous labor isn't a choice. Secondly, women who go into spontaneous labor are fundamentally different from those who don't. So next, the question could be, does the rate of C-sections decrease if an induced labor at 40 weeks is delayed to 41 weeks? And the data don't suggest that that's the case. What this question really requires is a randomized controlled trial, but that's not going to be done for something like this. I've linked to some studies that show how murky this topic is in the show notes if you're interested. Yeah. And I was just like, really? Why was this not part of the first time? This this probably was preventable. By the time I was pushing, it was no longer preventable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. there at that point, for sure. Does this conversation with the yeah. doctor in any way allay the other thought in your head of I have failed? For sure. For sure. It's never, it's never your fault, but just realizing that my body can do this. Yeah. It wasn't my body's fault that this happened. It was just a combination of circumstances and, and not knowing enough going into it to say, I'd like to wait I mean, your first time, you don't know. You don't know what your body's going to do. You don't know how it's going to go. Now I know that I labor quickly, I labor hard, and I labor really well. My body is really good at birth. But I didn't know that then, so. Yeah, I mean, that's that's not a shock. I don't know the degree to which it is genetic, but clearly your mother was in the same camp, right? Yeah. You, you only end up with that many kids if you can do it relatively easily. Yeah, right. um, is my sense of that. So yeah, and postpartum is super hard. And I think one of the things that maintains this fiction that being pregnant is about the rosy glow and the big bump and the beautiful hair and, mm-hmm. you know, birth is like a Instagrammable event where you look so gorgeous afterwards and everyone's so happy. I think that elides over so much really complicated science that has to happen to get all those things to work in concert, which for sure, if you're inducing, you might jump over some steps and miss miss the synchronization of all those different hormones that have to come online to, to make that work seamlessly. 
it, which is also true for breastfeeding, right? There's, yeah. that's a really complicated thing for your body to do. Mm-hmm. And I think people think it's easy because a lot of people can do it. So like everything else related to pregnancy, once you drill down into the details, breastfeeding is much more complicated than it looks. Hormones secreted in the course of pregnancy change the architecture of the breast, and a feedback loop between the brain and the breast affects milk supply once the baby's born. Many women report that they leak when their baby cries. This is thanks to another hormone that responds to stimuli in the mother's body. Whether breastfeeding works seamlessly or not also depends on the baby. Do they have tongue tie? How's their sucking reflex? Are there things in the mother's diet the baby's allergic to? There are a lot of things that have to come together for this to work. But you know, every person who breastfeeds has some story about it. Oh yeah, for sure. It's when it works, it's hard work. Yeah. And when it doesn't, it's a whole other, it was, yeah, it was was a whole thing. Yeah. I still sometimes wonder if maybe I could have, because I've learned since then that I actually can't pump worth anything. Even when I'm making plenty of milk for my baby, my body just doesn't respond to the pump for some reason. So it's possible I might've been able to, but I try not to like go down that rabbit hole because it was what it was. We did the best we could and she was okay. So yeah. I mean, I think the watchword now is fed is best. Oh yeah. I, I was, I was a bottle fed baby. My mom tried and it just, it just didn't work. So they're out of 11 of us. Some of us were bottle fed. Some of us were breastfed and like tell by looking at us or seeing yeah. how we find out like yes <laughs> I mean what we came to the conclusion and everyone was supportive of is it's more important for this baby that she have a healthy sane mother yeah agreed so killing yourself driving yourself crazy trying to make this work is worse for her than just giving her the bottle yeah she's happy with the bottle I mean after five weeks she didn't even want a nurse anymore like just just give me the bottle. <laughs> yeah, that totally makes sense. So I know that when you and I shared a little bit about your background before our conversation, you were saying that with the birth of your next two sons, you, you learned a ton about your first birth. So let's talk a little bit about that. So how much space is there between the first one and the second? A little over two years between the first and second. So I was really scared going into my second birth because I was scared I was going to have to have another C-section. I didn't want another emergency C-section, but I did want to try to have a VBAC. So I was trying to balance. I don't want to schedule a C-section because I don't want to do it if I don't have to, but I also don't want to end up in the same situation because it was, it was just horrible. (laughs) Emergency C-sections are terrible. I think they're you're, it's really painful. The recovery took forever. It was just not a good situation, but I did have this wonderful, wonderful doctor who really cared about us. She really, really wanted it to work for us. She was also very practical and wasn't going to push it if it wasn't going to work. So she would tell me what was best. Basically. I learned that I can ask more questions and get more information than I had the first time, but it was really, it was really the birth itself that sort of gave me back to myself in a way. I'm going to end our conversation here. Thanks to Megan for sharing the significant daylight between what she thought pregnancy and birth would be like and what it was actually like. What I take away from Megan's experience is that you have to be an active participant in your pregnancy and birth. 
Even if you're unsure, or especially because you're unsure of how it will unfold, asking questions can create a real relationship between you and the doctors in your practice. And it's ultimately that connection, that kind of communication that can make a big difference between a birth in which you feel that things were done for you and a birth in which you feel that things were done to you. Next week, we'll hear the rest of Megan's story. And what I'll say about that is she lives through a movie-like arc with each birth better than the one before. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, feel free to like and subscribe or leave us a comment on the War Stories from the Womb website. We'll be back next week with another inspiring story.